So when I mention the word paradise to you all, what is jumping to your heads right now? Are you sitting on a beach with a drink in your hand, lying in a hammock? Are you on top of a mountain and you feel like you're on top of the world? Well, I suspect that many of you might be more the indoorsy type. And paradise to you is curling up on the sofa, it's a duvet day, and you're watching your favourite box sets. You see, paradise is a place where we can find rest. But it's also a place that makes us feel refreshed and alive. And we all recharge in different ways. Because we're all individuals. We're all unique. But one thing that we have in common is that we are humans. We are made in the image of God. And we are created to know him and to enjoy him forever. You see, God's original paradise for us was in his original creation. Back in the beginning, we can live in harmony with God and enjoy his paradise. But sin entered the world. Through the disobedience of Adam and Eve, we read that in Genesis chapter 3. And now we struggle to find paradise because of it. Now, every so often, we will experience pockets of paradise. Like when we go on holidays, for example. But how will we ever know true paradise once again? Through the death of Jesus that we read here in Luke chapter 23, we can enter and experience true paradise. But the question I have for you this morning is this. Who is able to enter into God's paradise? And to answer this question, we have encountered three types of people in Luke 23 who are both found at the place of Jesus' death at the cross, but is also characterized by Luke to show us who can enter God's paradise. And the first answer that we discover in Luke chapter 23 is this in verse 35. It's not the religious who get in. Look at verse 35 with me. And we see that the people are standing watching as Jesus is being nailed to a cross. But so are the rulers here as well. And these rulers are the religious leaders. They are the rulers of the temple. They were the ones who taught the scriptures to the people. They knew what was basically the Old Testament cover to cover. And they knew fully well that the Old Testament foretold of a Messiah or the chosen one of God who will come to rescue and redeem his people. But here's the problem. The religious leaders struggle to both identify who the chosen one is. Look at their mockery here in verse 35. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The word Luke uses here is that they sneered at him. Or another way to put it, they turned their noses up at him. They reject him. Like a piece of scum that doesn't deserve any attention or respect. And it's often said that Christianity is about relationship and not about religion. And here's the reason why. 
Religion in the context of this passage is more about human effort in attempt to please God rather than realizing that there is nothing you can do but in return God has done something for you to come towards him. And now the Bible of course talks about true religion. True religion in James chapter 1 is looking after the widows and orphans in distress and keeping oneself pure from the world. But here's the problem. These religious leaders that we meet here in verse 35 have failed in looking after the widows and orphans. Instead, these religious leaders were known for lining their pockets with money they made off the widows' offerings, and the orphans were often neglected. And as for keeping oneself pure, they thought they succeeded in that. In fact, not only did they uphold the law of the Old Testament that God gave his people, but they also followed the additional law of their own written codes. But just because they looked good on the outside, it doesn't mean that they were good on the inside. In another one of the Gospels, Jesus says this about the religious leaders directly to their faces. Jesus says to them, you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with, inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see, it's this kind of religion that doesn't bring you any closer to God. Because God looks beyond the external appearance of someone and he looks straight into their hearts. And you can come here today with your finest suit on, your hair sitting perfectly, lucky for you, and your shoes nicely polished and clean. But that doesn't make a difference to God. God looks at your heart. And if you fail to listen to what he tells you in his word, then you fail to listen to him as a child listens to their father. You see, all of God's word tells us to know him by looking to his chosen servant, Jesus, who was sent by God. And the religious leaders missed the point in rejecting Jesus. Now, I grew up going to church, but that didn't mean that I knew God. I knew lots about God, and I knew lots about God's word, but I completely missed the point. In fact, I remember before I became a Christian, I used to sit and debate the Bible with friends in school who had never read the Bible before in their life, but I didn't have a clue what I was talking about. In fact, I thought I did, but I was acting like a religious hypocrite. And it was only when I sat in a youth group one night and I remember my uncle telling me the gospel for the first time that my eyes were opened. I didn't know Jesus, but I now knew that I was a sinner and going to church didn't make me more special than anyone else. I was just as far away from God as those kids in school I debated the Bible with. And that's because being religious in such a way that ignores what God is actually telling you in his word, does not give you a ticket to paradise. When we become religious, we rely on ourselves and not God. 
We try to do good things. We try to be good in ourselves. But no matter how hard we try, we fall short of God's perfect standard. It's not enough. Because it's not about that. It's about listening to God and hearing what he is teaching us through his word. And what he's teaching us is to look to his son, Jesus, who will bring us into paradise. You see, the religious miss this. And for this reason, they won't be in paradise. And if that's you here this morning, then don't be like them. Don't become like them either. And so the religious won't get in. And secondly, it's not the powerful who get in either. Look at verse 36 with me. And here in verse 36, we meet the soldiers. Now, these soldiers were soldiers representing the Roman Empire, who were both in control of Jerusalem, where we are at in this passage. And they are also in the most powerful empire of that time. Now, just to give a bit of context about the Romans, they didn't invent crucifixion, but according to historians, they perfected it in its brutality in execution. These Romans were also one of the most pagan and hedonistic groups of people you can meet. And those in power paraded about in their wealth. They lived in a hypersexual culture and they could get whatever they wanted with ease. To be a Roman was advantageous in those days. And to be a Jewish person who might oppose or be a threat to the empire was walking in dangerous territory. Well, here in verses 36 and 37, we see that Jesus offers no threat to them at all. In fact, Jesus is completely defenseless. However, that doesn't stop the Roman soldiers from having fun and toying with their prey in mockery, like a lion toying with a dying mouse. Not only do they mock Jesus and force him to drink wine vinegar in verse 36 from a sponge, but something that we see in other gospel accounts is that this sponge was commonly used as a toilet brush. In verse 37, they say to him, and they call him the king of the Jews, as they mock him and say, save yourself. You see, to the Romans, there's only one king. His name is Caesar. And this king in front of them is nothing more than a weak, defenseless man who hangs there. And in verse 34, Everything he owns is divided amongst them. As a child, one of my favorite stories growing up was the story of Robin Hood. And the bad guy in Robin Hood is the sheriff of Nottingham. He is depicted as an unjust tyrant. He mistreats the people of Nottinghamshire and imposes impossible taxes. The sheriff's goal is to become king. And he will do so through treachery and wielding his power to get whatever he wants. His efforts to obtain everything, though, 
comes at the cost of many, including the poor and the powerless. You see, this was like how the Roman Empire acted in those days. They wanted to grow stronger. They wanted to grow more powerful. They needed more money for their war efforts. So how do you get more money? Well, you enforce taxes. And simply put, more taxes mean more money. More money means more power. But if you look in the news today, you'll hear very little mention of the Roman Empire. Maybe the exception if they've dug up a bit of the city, um, like a bit of pottery or a bit of the wall over at the Tower of London. And that's because despite how powerful they thought they were, they're not as powerful as God and his kingdom or even as his king. You see, God's king was mocked by the Roman soldiers. But the Roman soldiers are gone. And God's king reigns eternally in heaven today. In the book of Isaiah, um, something that we've just um, sang about, it tells us that God's servant was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And that he suffered silently whilst he was mocked. He was stricken. He was bruised. He was punished for our iniquities and our sins. And upon him was more than just the mockery of the brutality of the Roman soldiers or the religious leaders. The wrath of God was poured upon him in full. But fast forward to the book of Revelation and we see the bigger picture. As the writer John looks at the throne of heaven... And he sees thousands upon thousands of people bowing and worshipping the one sitting on a throne. And John looks to see who is sitting there. And he sees a lamb who looks as if it had been slain. This lamb is the servant of God who is not just the king of the Jews as ironically proclaimed in verse 38. But he is also the king of kings. And the Lord of all. He is more powerful than any worldly leader. And what we see here is that no one thinks, no one who thinks that they are powerful will enter God's paradise. Because, like the religious, they reject the one who is all powerful. If that's you here this morning, if you're relying on your wealth, if you're relying on your successes, if you rely on everything that you have done, well, that's still not enough. But the picture in Revelation is that there are thousands upon thousands who will be in paradise. And so if it's not the religious or the powerful, well, then who are these people? Surely, If we've rolled out the religious and the powerful, well, that means that the unworthy, the lowest of the low, the despicable, the waster, the scumbag, they're the ones who get in. Well, not quite. Look at verses 39 to 41 with me. Now, back in verses 32 and 33, we see that Jesus is crucified with two criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And the writer Luke wants us to be absolutely clear about the identity of these two individuals. They've committed crimes. They're being justly punished for their crimes. And the place where they're being punished or executed is at the place called the skull. Now we don't know why it's called that. 
Some think it's because it's shaped like a skull. Others think that's because it's where the Roman executions took place. But what we know here is that it is based outside the city. And there the crucifixions happen as a warning to those who enter the city and think twice about committing a crime. Those who are caught and punished, they're cast out of the city and made an image of public ridicule for those who witness. And what's interesting here is that two groups of people that we have seen so far have been people of stature who would have appeared to be in the in crowd. Now, there is a song that used to play in my old place of work um, by Dobby Gray. He was a soul singer. I don't know if any of you have heard of him. And he says in his song, it described what it meant for him to be in the in crowd. You see, when you're in the in crowd, you get respect from everyone you meet. People want to be like you. They want to walk like you, talk like you, dress like you, because they look up to you and want to emulate you. But the people who are looking up to these two criminals and Jesus in verse 33, they aren't looking to gain respect from him. Instead, they're looking up at three men who are not in the in crowd. Instead, they are rejected and on the very outside circle of society. They are despised and rejected. But there's a shocking difference here between these two men hanging beside Jesus that tells us who can get into God's paradise. Look at verses 40 to 41. Now back in verse 39, the criminal um, in verse 39 throws insults at Jesus. He's angry. He demands to be rescued. Look at the reaction of the other criminal. He says this, verse 40. Don't you fear God, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. The criminal or thief in verse 39 is said not just to throw insults at Jesus, but in the Greek, in the original language, he is said to blaspheme Jesus. Now to blaspheme is simply to irreverently speak against God. And in his blasphemy, he feels that he deserves to be saved. Especially if Jesus is as he claims to be. It's like he's put Jesus in the dock. And Jesus is under trial here. And even though the thief is the guilty party, he's accusing Jesus of doing nothing to save him from death. This thief wants a way out. Now years ago I remember hearing about a mini revival that took place in one of the villages nearby where I grew up. And lots of young men were apparently coming to faith. Now, you might guess from my accent, this is Northern Ireland I'm talking about here. And this is a strongly Protestant village with a lot of paramilitary or gang activity happening in it. And the reason why this revival was happening is that there were two ways to avoid being groomed and coerced into joining the gang. You could either take a punishment beating, which meant that you were no good to anyone, Or the flip side is that you could identify as a Christian and that way you're exempt because of your faith. 
Well, many men took the easy road, as you can imagine. And a few weeks later, once the recruitment drive had finished, these people went back to their old ways. You see, it's just like the religious and the powerful, those who come to Jesus and demand freedom, like a get-out-of-jail-free card. They might not get into paradise either. So who will? Well, when we look at verses 42 and 43, we see it's this. Whoever turns to Jesus by faith, they will get into God's paradise. And look again at what the criminal says in verse 41, but also in verse 42. And here we can see three things that this criminal or thief says. Firstly, he confesses his guilt. Look at verse 41. He knows he's guilty. He deserves his punishment. He says it himself, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But look at the end of verse 41 as well. And this is the second thing. He confesses, which is the first thing. But secondly, he acknowledges who Jesus is and he acknowledges that Jesus is innocent. End of verse 41. This man has done nothing wrong. But look at verse 42 as well. And we see the third thing here that this man does. He confesses. He acknowledges. Verse 42, he pleads for mercy. The thief then says this, Jesus, remember me when you come in to your kingdom. He doesn't demand a free ticket out. He asks for mercy and remembrance. And in turning to Jesus, the thief gets more than what he asked for. Look at verse 43. Jesus tells him with confident assurance Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. When I was preparing this, all I could hear in my head is that apocryphal story from Alistair Begg when he speaks about this passage. For those of you who don't know this story, the thief on the cross enters through the gates of heaven and the archangel Gabriel welcomes him and he says, You've made it! You've made it. That's amazing. Well done. But please tell me, how did you get here? The thief says, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Well, I don't know. And so the angel scratches his head and he's kind of going, okay, well, do you know the doctrine of justification by faith? The thief looks at him blankly. Do you know about salvation? Do you know about superlapsarianism? The thief looks at him bewildered. And the angel says in frustration, Well, on what basis are you here? And the thief says these words, The man on the middle cross said I could come. Folks, this is the only answer of how we can get into paradise. This is the gospel. I remember doing a house visit with one of the ladies from GCB. 
And um, we asked the girls that we visited what they think the word gospel meant. They pictured a scene from Sister Act with people dancing and singing and having a good time. And the gospel should cause us to rejoice from the bottom of our hearts because the gospel is this. Jesus, the Son of God, came to die on a cross for sinners like you and like me so that we can enter God's paradise all because of him. And if you want to know how to get into the paradise of God, it's simple. Turn to Jesus. That's it. Turn to him. Confess your sins. Acknowledge that you can't do anything. Your religious efforts are no good. You are not powerful, but you are weak and you can't escape. But turn to Jesus and accept the gift he's offering to you now. I said at the very beginning that the Bible starts with a garden. God's original paradise for his people. But did you know that the Bible also ends with a garden as well? This garden is a paradise that Jesus speaks of in verse 43. It's a place of perfect rest. There's no suffering, no shame. And those who enter will be with him. There's a reason why today is called Good Friday. It's good because it's all about the good news that Jesus came to bring us into paradise through his death. That is the gospel. And rejoicing doesn't mean that you have to be dancing on your seats. And I'm only saying that because I'll get in trouble with Michael if I tell you to put your feet on those chairs. But all we must do to know God, to enter his paradise, is to turn to Jesus. That's amazing. That's it. Turn to him. Know who he is and say to him, Lord, remember me. For those of you who are believers here this morning, take heart in the promise that he gives us. This is a trustworthy and true statement. When we die, we will be with him in paradise. This gives me great comfort in my heart, not just for me, but for my loved ones who have turned to Jesus by faith. And they're no longer with us here today. But they are at rest. They are in paradise with their Lord and their Savior. But if you're not a Christian here this morning, maybe you're struggling in your efforts to know God. Maybe you're relying on religion. Maybe you're relying on your power. Maybe you're relying on yourself. Then please turn to Jesus. Maybe you're down on your luck. You want the easy way out. Turn to Jesus. And when you turn to him, you're finding the perfect love of God displayed before you in the cross. And in turning to Jesus, you know that he is Lord. He is able to give you so much more than peace. He will give you rest for your weary, burdened soul as well. You see, it's only in turning to Jesus that we gain entry by him into God's eternal paradise.